We are in our final week of our series of Better Treasure, and we have also come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So we are in our final uh, week of the larger series we've been in for the better part of a year called The Uncommon Kingdom. And for this last year, we've been navigating through the Sermon on the Mount, letting Jesus teach us and reveal to us and describe for us and then call us to the kingdom life, the life as a citizen of, a, of the kingdom of God, which is a life with our hearts and our minds fully engaged in God's design and in God's mission and in God's purpose for us. And so Jesus has been preaching this sermon for three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And like a good preacher, he's preached the best sermon ever. And now he has come uh, to a close and he's beginning to give people the opportunity to respond. So he's laid out this life, and now he is saying, now it's time to respond. I want you to enter by the narrow gate, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And so um, the issue for them, for all of those that were sitting around on the hillside that day and, and heard this sermon, the main issue, the main hurdle they had to get over um, to embrace this life that Jesus was laying out was they had to then let go of what they thought being religious and having relationship with God was. See, they thought it was about religion and Jesus is calling them into a relationship. And listen, that's the same issue for us. Jesus is revealing, he is showing what God truly desires what he truly wants from his creation, from those of us who would say, we want to follow. What he wants is a relationship and a righteousness lived through our life that only comes from a relationship with him. That's what he's calling us to, which means this for us as well. If we're going to embrace the kingdom life, if we're going to take hold of this life Jesus has laid out for us, it is going to mean that we have to let go of what we thought it was so that we can take hold of what Jesus says it actually is. And we can, we can live that righteousness that Christ gives us and that only Christ can give, give us. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, right at the beginning, right as he, his first words uh, of this sermon uh, that, that he preaches, he lays out these markers, these markers that are uh, stamped on the character of the people of God. He is saying, the people that belong to me, the people who have relationship with me, there are going to be markers in their life. There are going to be things that are visible. You're going to be able to see them in their life. There's going to be an inside working in their heart that is going to become an outward working of righteousness. And so these marks, these stamps that we see, he gives us right at the beginning of Matthew 5 in what we call the Beatitudes. Right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, those who are recognized, they are spiritually poor and need Jesus. He said, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn their sin, who are broken over the things in their life that don't please God. He said, blessed are those who are meek, those who are humble, those who, who have surrendered their life, who have sacrificed pride and realized they need to surrender their life to Jesus. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Meaning, blessed are those now 
who have turned their heart toward me and are beginning to take hold of this life as a kingdom citizen. They are hungering after more of me. And he goes on to say, blessed are the merciful. So now this righteousness is starting to be lived out through us because we live out lives of mercy. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. So our motives are pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we're, we're making peace in the world around us. And blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. He's saying again, those who are willing to suffer for what they have found in me, that's an evidence, that's a marker, that's a stamp that they belong to me, right? But from there on, from the end of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5 around verse 12, really for the rest of chapter 5, for all of chapter 6, and for all of chapter 7, Jesus is contrasting between those who have those markers and those who don't. He's contrasting between those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. Those who are producing fruit in their life and those who are not producing that fruit um, in their life. And he spends the rest of his sermon talking about these two groups of people. And so think back with me through the Sermon on the Mount and think about how he begins to compare and contrast them. He holds up the Pharisees often and says, they, they live out a type of righteousness that's very religious and wants to be seen, but my people are going to have a righteousness that is exceeding that because it's born out of their heart. It's a righteousness I've put in them. And they don't live righteously to be seen. They live righteously as an act of worship and obedience and surrender. There's a difference, right? Jesus says, um, The Pharisees and and this religious group has told you that if you will just manage your sin, if you'll just manage it and make it look okay, don't murder, right? Don't commit adultery. If you can handle those things, you're being a good person and you're right with God. But Jesus says, no, my righteousness gets inside of you and it doesn't just care about murder. It cares about the anger in your heart because if I fix the anger, I already deal with the murder. He said it isn't just about adultery, it's about dealing with the the issue of lust because if you surrender the sin of lust, I deal with the the action of adultery, right? And Jesus said it's, it's not about just what you do, it's about what you do being born out of who you are. There's a difference between these two people. He goes on. He talks about how in uh, Matthew chapter 6... that those, the, the Pharisees, those who are just being religious, they do their praying and their giving and their fasting so everyone will notice them. Jesus says, my people pray, they will pray, they will give, they will fast, and they will do these things because of a relationship with me. It's an act of worship that they are doing with me. He said, there's a difference between these two groups. Most of, most of these folks are going to lay up treasures on earth, but my people will treasure me above everything and they will lay up treasure in heaven. He said, these folks are going to be worried about the littlest things in life and they're going to be consumed with anxiety because they aren't surrendering their life. But my people are going to seek first the kingdom of God and, and by righteousness, knowing that in that, all of these other things will be added to them. And then he gets toward uh, about halfway through chapter seven and, and really starts to draw a stark contrast where he says, One of these groups um, is on a very easy road headed toward a very wide gate. And they're on it with a lot of people. Um, But at the end of that road is destruction. But my people are on a hard road headed to a very narrow gate. And there's only a few of them. 
but what they are finding is life. He said, there are those who are on the easy road and those who are headed to life. He goes on, even after that, to say, um, there are those um, who are bearing good fruit, who the gospel is so evident in their life, you can see it. And then there are those who are being deceived by the wolves. There are those who are true and there are those who are false. And so we're kind of coming now to the end of this sermon and we're going to look at one of these last um, contrasting things. But the point Jesus is making throughout all the Sermon on the Mount is this. It is that in belonging to him and in embracing this kingdom life, ready, we're changed. We are, cha- we are marked. There is a uniqueness that comes on us when we have been made new in Christ. We're not the same anymore. Belonging to Jesus marks you in an undeniable way. Now, how many of you would say you have relatives, parents, brother, sister, grandparents, that you look so much like them, y'all can't deny one another. You, just, you cannot deny where you can't. You just look like them, right? We have strong family resemblances in, in my family. My dad and, when, and my brother, when they were the same age, uh, they looked very much alike, right? He favored my dad's side of the family. I favored more of my mother's side of the family. The, her, their last name was Gall, and, or what my mom and I called the crazy good-looking side of the family. I favored that side. And um, so I'm going to show you a picture. I, I favored my grandfather uh, quite a bit. His name was John Gall. But before I show you this picture, all right, we're just going to make an agreement with one another. This was the 80s. I was a child of the 80s. So be sweet, every single one of you. Be sweet and no judging, all right? So uh, this is me when I was young with a picture of my grandfather. Let's put that up. Okay, look at that. How did I already have a Jimmy Swaggart haircut when I was that young? Look at that. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Okay, so my grandfather and I, we looked looked a lot alike. Um, I know that picture's kind of fuzzy. There was no part of us that favored more than our giant ears. We both have amazing giant ears. I have to put rocks in my pocket on a windy day, you know, and so that's been my, that's been my whole life. Um, but there's a, there's a resemblance there to, to my grandfather. But listen, I'm not just like him in, in how we look. Um, I act like my, I acted like my grandfather. Um, there, there was more passed down through my family than just appearance, right? There were attitudes, there were behaviors. The gall side of the family is some stubborn humans. They just are. And I got some of that too. So it was how I talk. My, my children know when I'm on the phone with someone I'm related to, because they're like, dad, you talk completely different when you're talking to people that you're kin, you're people. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, but it's how I talk. It's in the accent. It's in my behaviors. It's in my looks. It's, it's in all of these things. There is evidence in my life of the family I belong to, right? And, and because of who I belong to, there are these marks on me, these marks in my life, how I look, how I talk, but more than that, what I value, what I'm good at, what I struggle with. So much of this came from my family. And listen, in that same way, When we belong to Jesus, when we belong to him, when we have received new life in Christ, we are marked with his nature and his character. 
it becomes an, there is an evidence on us that we belong to Him. How we think, how we talk, how we act, what we value, um, what we're passionate about, our, inner, our inward motives. All of these things become markers on us and an evidence of who we belong to. And so we're going to look at this last contrast that Jesus gives us to make this point that there really are two groups of people. So grab your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew 7 verse 21, Jesus is coming now to the end of this sermon, and he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would make me so very faithful to your word this morning. God, I recognize that I am in absolute need of, of your spirit to move, of your, your word to speak. And so, Lord, I pray that your, this truth would rise up among us, God, that you would, that you would raise up in us a courage to examine ourselves this morning. And for those of us who need to be jolted out of our slumber and called to salvation, would you do it today? So God, we, we just confess our need for you. We need your word. Speak it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is, it's imperative. It is, it is uh, critical to eternity that we make certain we are getting this right. Jesus is saying, it's imperative that you know if whether or not you're on the narrow road, that you're producing the good fruit of, of the gospel, that you haven't been misled by the wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Because Jesus says that um, there are going to be many who are headed to destruction. And when he says that, he isn't just talking about the murderers and the obvious evildoers, right? He's saying there are going to be many who will say, Lord, Lord, and they will be utterly shocked when they hear the words, depart from me. They will be shocked when they hear the words, I don't know you. Jesus is saying there are going to be many in that camp. God, but didn't I? God, but didn't I say this and didn't... I never knew you. 
This is why Paul gives one of the most important verses, in my opinion, one of the most important verses for us in all of the Bible. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and it says this. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. What is Paul, what is Paul calling us to do? Paul's saying, hey, this is not something you want to risk. This isn't something you want to gamble. This isn't something you want to live a life with a, with a question mark. He is calling us to think critically about our life and to truly examine our walk with Christ, which means being honest about where we truly are and answering questions honestly at our gut soul level. Am I in Christ and is Christ in me? This is not a call to doubt. This is a call to honesty. Does the fruit of my life declare that I have surrendered my life to Jesus? Does the fruit of the lives of my family and my friends declare that they are in Christ? You see, the danger that I think we have is that we assume, don't we? We do a lot of that right here in, in the Bible bubble of, uh, of East Texas. We assume. We assume we're good with God. We assume we're all right. We make these assumptions because we have a culture that goes to church. We have a culture that tries to be a good neighbor and tries to be nice. You say, well, I, I go to church. I grew up going to church. I grew up in a good Christian home. The number of people who, when I asked them to tell me when they were saved, when they met Jesus, said, well, I grew up in a good Christian home. I've been saved all my life. No, you hadn't. Nope. I don't care how good your mama was. If there wasn't a moment that you met Jesus and you made him the Lord of your life, you haven't been saved. And there's this, there's this culture that we have that says, but I go to church. I'm a good person. I try to be a good neighbor. I take care of my family. I, I, I try to do all of these things and be a good Christian, and we assume that a few of these good things makes us good with Jesus, but I want you to hear me this morning. Jesus did not come to be assumed. He came to be declared. Amen. Jesus did not enter this world dying on a cross for the salvation of mankind so that we could just assume and hope that we are in based on the fact that we're doing the best we can. Does your life Declare, does it shout? Does it absolutely shout forth the reality that you are not your own, but that you belong to Jesus? Is that true in your life? So I'm going to ask you to lean in with me this morning because we're going to navigate some hard verses, some hold up the mirror and examine your own heart verses of Scripture. And they're challenging. They're not easy. But I want us to do these together. And so we're coming now to the end of this sermon, this close. Um, and Jesus is showing us all along the way, there are the markers of those who belong to me. And there are the markers of those who are deceived and only think they are on the narrow road that leads to life. Um, they've got a life that looks like it's built on me, but at the foundation, it's not Christ. And so we're going to look this morning at those markers, three things that I think Jesus wants us to take hold of 
as we navigate to the end this morning. And so we're going to see three markers of those who are deceived, um, who really are not in the kingdom, and we want to take hold of these. Here they are. The first is this. They confess Jesus with their lips, but have never surrendered their lives. Confess Jesus with their lips, but they've never surrendered their lives. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I'm just going to tell you, let's just all sit with the reality this morning together. That's one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Does that scare anybody other than me? That's one of the most jolting verses in all of God's Word. That not everyone who comes to the end and stands before the judgment and cries out the name of Jesus. He said, those who do the will of my Father. They, those who are deceived, they have acknowledged Jesus with their lips. They've acknowledged he's a real person, that he, um, that he died. They can even acknowledge that he rose again. They've heard the message of Jesus, have a lot of great things to say about Jesus, know a lot of the right language to speak affirming Jesus, but aren't, they aren't doing the will of Jesus. And Jesus says, the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father. It's the one who is doing what God said my people do. That's who gets into the kingdom of heaven. Because if you aren't doing, are you in, are, have you been made new? Now don't hear me say that it's our works that save us. God's word is crystal clear that we are saved by faith alone through Christ alone. Amen? Do you believe that? That's how we're saved. Look at if I just want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone. So we know that being saved in this faith in Christ it's not works that save us, but in that, what we also know is that in that submission to Christ, the result of salvation is obedience. Are you with me? We are saved by faith alone in Christ, but that faith that saves us results in obedience. In other words, we are, we're saved by faith and not works, but a faith that saves is going to work. Now, let's just sit with that for a minute. We are saved by faith and not works. But a faith that has truly saved is going to work. It's going to do something. What do I mean? I mean this. There is no version of the gospel where we receive Jesus as our Savior without submitting to Him as our Lord. There is no version of the gospel 
where we get the fire insurance of salvation so that we don't go to hell and live a life however we want to live it, doing whatever we want to do, not doing the will of the Father. There is no version of salvation that goes unseen and is passive in our lives. It doesn't exist. That isn't the gospel. And we've built a culture that says, if you'll just come to church and look the part a little bit, then you're fine. But I'm telling you, the work of the gospel is this, that I am producing gospel fruit, that it is being born out of my life. And if it isn't being born out, then have I been born again? And listen, there are a lot of churches where you can go where they don't, they don't talk about that. They just tell you, aren't you super awesome? <laughs> well, I already know I'm not awesome, Right? There's no version of the gospel in any shape or form where we get Jesus as our Savior and he deals with our sin and we don't fully surrender to him as Lord. And you say, well, hold on a minute. Isn't that the same thing? All my life, I've, we've heard, you know, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, right? So doesn't that mean the same thing? If I make him my Savior, isn't he my Lord? And if he's my Lord, isn't he my Savior? And I would say to you, yes, if you have truly been born again, if you have truly been saved, then you are under the Lordship of Christ, but that Lordship is going to be seen. There's going to be evidence. New life produces good fruit. But when the Lordship of Jesus is not seen, when there is no surrender, when there is no gospel fruit, then have you really received the gospel? And I'm asking you not to push away, not to go, oh, well, this is for some lost person and it ain't for me. Hold up the mirror of 2 Corinthians 13 and examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because many are going to say, Lord, didn't I go to church? Lord, didn't I go to life group? Lord, I floated in every now and then. I put a 20 in the plate sometimes. Didn't my church go on mission? Didn't, didn't I? And many will say, Lord, Lord, but I will say I never knew you. If I'm honest with you, this is, if you want to know what keeps your pastors up at night, it's that. Right there. That many of our people have confessed Jesus with their lips and have never surrendered their life to him. If you want to know what makes us lose sleep, it's that. And I think it's why so many people experience spiritual exhaustion. Spiritual exhaustion. What do I mean by that? I mean, they are trying to live a righteous life without the righteousness of Christ in them. They are trying to do spiritual things without the power of the Holy Spirit in them. So that everything they do, every spiritual rhythm they try to keep, everything they try to do that from reading their Bible and praying and giving and fasting and serving, every spiritual thing they try to do is life draining and not life giving. Because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit giving them life into that discipline, into that joy of God's word, into that desire to pray, into that desire to open our hands and be generous. And I'm just going to ask you, hold up the mirror, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself. Is it life-giving 
to read God's word, to pray sincerely, to live generously, to serve the kingdom, or is it life draining? If your honest assessment is, I try hard, but it's like, it wears me out. My question is, have, do you have the righteousness of Christ? Do you have the Holy Spirit who is empowering you to do this? Is your life declaring Jesus as Lord? I don't know about you, I, I, I sometimes get to the heart of the matter for myself when I ask myself the right questions. I love working with Ben Lofton because he says all the time, Pastor, we get the right information when we ask the right questions, right? I love that dude's brain. And so, is your life declaring Jesus is Lord. Is, is there a growing passion for Christ in your life? Let me ask it this way. Is your life becoming more and more aligned with Jesus? Is there evidence of his lordship? Jesus says, those who are deceived will confess me with their lips, but have not surrendered their life. Here's the second thing he says. Those who are deceived are going to practice religion for Jesus without a personal relationship with Jesus. Going to practice religion for him without a relationship with him. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said there are going to be those who have done a great job at practicing all things that look religious. They are giving it some serious religious effort. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we say the right things? Didn't we cast out demons and do mighty works? Didn't we, didn't we give it some serious religious effort? And Jesus is showing that those who are deceived will often say the right things about the Lord. They will use a lot of eternal language. We talked about this a few weeks ago, a lot of narrow gate language, but they have not submitted to the authority of, the, of, of Christ. And the point is this, not everyone who uses the right language has the right relationship. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? If you grew up around church, you've been hearing that language all your life, to have a relationship with Christ. And those, that's an important thing to understand. What does it mean to have a relationship? Well, Jesus kind of unpacks this right here in this verse. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. When you see in Scripture the repeating of someone's title, Teacher, teacher, rabbi, rabbi, Lord, Lord. When you see that, it, it's an implication of intimacy. It's, 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 um, it's drawing a, a picture that they have a close relationship with the person they are calling teacher or Lord. But Jesus uses equally intimate language in response to that. He says, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, but I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. That word knew is a very important word. Um, it's, it's the Greek word gnosko. And that doesn't matter outside of this. In Jewish tradition, that word was used to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's that I never knew you. 
And that's the word that would have been used the way a husband and a wife know one another, which made me immediately just think about my own marriage. Um, I have a relationship with my wife. I, I, I love my wife. I share my life with her. I know her. She, she knows me. She knows the thoughts in my mind sometimes before I can formulate them and get them out of my mouth, my mouth, right? My wife can tell me what I'm thinking. This is not a joke. Just by what my eyebrows do. You know what I mean? Just by what my eyebrows do, she can go, no, you need to fix your face because there's all kind of stuff going on that you didn't say it, but I know what you're thinking, right? Anybody, ladies, you can do that, right? You can just read us. She, she knows me, right? And, and, and I, I know her. And listen, I don't just spend a little time with her when it's convenient for me. And I don't just schedule a few minutes with her once a week. Because of the relationship I have with her, there is an ever-growing love for her in my life. I love to be with her. I love spending time with her. I love to talk about her. Listen, I will say no to everything else so I can say yes to her. And Jesus is saying, many are going to say, Lord, Lord. But I'm going to say, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. I didn't know you in this way of intimacy. You were never mine. Nothing in your life evidenced that you wanted to know me more, that you were constantly growing in your love for me, that you were willing to say no to everything else so you could have me. There was no evidence of that. I see you practicing religion. But you didn't have the relationship. Jesus, when he says, I never knew you, I, I want you to hear me say that doesn't mean he knew you at one time and forgot. Jesus doesn't have amnesia. Right? He's saying, you were never mine. So again, let's hold up the mirror of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and ask the question, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you gnosko? Do you know him? And does he know you? Is there a growing love for Jesus in your life? Are you walking with him? Have you surrendered to him? Are you sharing him? Are you saying no to whatever you have to say no to so that you can have him? Jesus said, those who are deceived will practice religion without the personal relationship. Here's the last thing he says. Those who are deceived will build a life with Jesus, but not a life on Jesus. Let's look at that. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine... And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is saying... Um, the rock, the, the solid foundation are the words that I teach you and the kingdom of God and you doing them. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. 
You hear them and you do them. That's the one who has the solid foundation. Simply put, Jesus is saying, we can't just look at the exterior of our life or the exterior of anyone else's life. The exterior of a house may look amazing, but somebody's got to crawl under and look at the foundation. Several years ago, Carrie and I were looking to buy a home, and we looked everywhere. We took our time. We found a house, and it checked all the boxes. It was beautiful, great yard, front and back. Had a little bit of woods in the back for my sweet little country heart. And I was like, oh, I think we're going to like this place. It's got everything. It's in the budget. Let's go get it. But there's a little thing you have to do between I want that house and I own that house. And it's called an inspection, right? And the inspector goes. The inspection report comes back. He says, everything looks great on this house, but the foundation is rotten. It is broken. And I can show you evidence where this house is tilting it is messed up, and there are some significant issues. You don't want to buy this house. I needed somebody who knew how to get past what looked good to get down to what was really going on, to get down underneath and look at the foundation. All of that beautiful exterior was completely dependent on a foundation that was rotten. And Jesus is saying, we got to be willing to look under the house. You got to be willing to get past your, your best effort, your good deeds, and you got to be willing to hold up the mirror of 2 Corinthians 13 and examine yourself to say, am I in the faith? Have I been born again? Is there an evidence that I have built a life not just on hearing God's word, but on doing it? Jesus says, these words of mine become the solid rock. They become the foundation. Do you know there are homes in the Middle East that they dug through the sand until they hit bedrock. And then they built a home on the bedrock. You know, there are homes that have been standing for 2,000 years in the Middle East. You want to know why? There have been wars, time, weather, sandstorm, all kind of craziness, and they're still standing. You want to know why? Because they're built on the bedrock. They're built on a firm foundation. And this is why God's word calls Jesus the cornerstone. It's why it calls him the rock and the fortress. It's why Isaiah called him the foundation of Zion, because a life built on him is going to stand in the storm. When we have to deal with our sin, it stands. When we have to surrender our pride, it stands. When we have to begin to let go of what we thought it was so we can chase Jesus, it stands. When we have to extend mercy when no one else will, the house stands. When we have to be a peacemaker and I don't really want to, the house stands. When we get persecuted and we have to endure with faithfulness, it stands. And Jesus is saying, there's a hurricane coming. There's a storm coming and it is going to reveal the foundation and we're going to get to the end of this life and every soul in this room is going to stand before God and you will hear one of two things. Well done or depart. There is no third option. There is nothing else. There is no redo. You want to know why Jesus said when the house built on the sand falls and great was the fall of it? 
Not only because they had put all this effort into it, because, but because once it fell, it fell for good. There is no redo at the day of judgment. You are here. Well done. Good and faithful, sir. Enter into the joy of your Father. Or you will hear, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, because I never knew you. This is why James says, the brother of Jesus, he's about to say some words that sound a whole lot like his big brother. James says in James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There it is. Those who hear and don't do are deceived. For anyone, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, is, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What is your life built on? Are you building a life where Jesus is a part of it? Are you building a life where he's the foundation of it? Is Jesus just a welcome addition to your life? Or is he your life? See, I think we treat Jesus often like the spoke on a bicycle rim. Anybody ever got your foot or your finger caught in the spoke of a bicycle rim? We treat Jesus like a spoke of a bicycle rim, right? He, that, that rim is, is all held together by the different spokes, keeps it in balance. In our life, we have the spoke of family, have a spoke of friends and hobbies and the things our kids are into and our job and school and got all these spokes and Jesus just becomes one of those spokes, but Jesus didn't come to be a spoke in the rim. He came to be the hub of your life. He came to be the center that every spoke found its true purpose in and its balance in and its meaning in and found its right priority in. You want to know why our priorities get out of whack? Because we, we build a life with Jesus, not on him. We just add him to. He becomes a thing we do on Sunday, not a thing that we have surrendered to every day. And he becomes a spoke in our life, and not the center, not the hub. So Paul says, examine yourself. See whether you are in the faith. So just very quickly with me for a moment. Let's hold up the mirror of the Sermon on the Mount. And let's look intently at ourselves. It's personal reflection. It's time to look into your heart. All right? Do the Beatitudes. Describe who you are. Are those things marks on your life? That you've recognized your spiritual poverty? That you mourn your, you really are heartbroken over your own sin? That you walk in meekness, surrendered to the Lord? that you hunger and thirst for Jesus more than anything else, that you extend mercy, that you make peace, that your motives are pure, that you're willing to be persecuted for Jesus. Are you marked by those things?
Do you do what he said in Matthew 5, verse 13, 14, and 15? Do you let your light shine before men so that they can see what Christ has done in you and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. Do you share what Christ has done for you? Where's your treasure? Is your treasure on earth? Or is your treasure, and have you made Jesus the treasure of your life? Is Jesus one of many good things, or is he the thing? Again, we are all going to stand before the judgment, before the one who knows every thought of our mind, every imagination of our heart. And on that day, just listen for a moment, on that day, it will not be admiration for Jesus that gets you in. It will be transformation by Jesus, evidenced by a life of obedience to Jesus. On that day, it will not be admiration for Jesus that invites you into the kingdom of heaven. It will be, have you been transformed by him, made evident by the life you lived in obedience to him? That's what Jesus says. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven do the will of my Father who is in heaven. I believe that day that there were those who heard that teaching. They heard this unbelievable sermon. They sat on that hillside. They were absolutely enamored with everything Jesus said. They thought the world of him. And when they finished, when Jesus finished, they stood up, they brushed off their robes, and they just walked away. I believe that there were those who did that. Just walked away. I, I, am, I am imploring you don't walk away this morning. Because I also know there were those who heard that. And there was a jolting in their heart that they needed a righteousness they could never produce on their own. They needed a new life. They needed to be born again. They needed to come running to Jesus. And they came and they received salvation. And they came under the banner of lordship. And he changed their life. Have you been born again? So I'm going to ask you just to bow with me. And just with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, I want you to embrace the reality that you will stand before the Lord God of heaven and you will give an account for what you did with Jesus. Just embrace that reality for a minute. And before you're ever asked to give an account of how well you loved your family, or provided, or what your church attendance looked like, you were going to be asked, were you born again? Do you know Jesus, and does he know you? Has he given you new life? So if you're here this morning, and you hear these words of Christ, and you just know you have not been born again, 
You have really done your best to try to be religious, but you have not been made new in Christ Jesus. If that's you right now with your head bowed and your eye closed, I just want you to ask the Lord to come and save you. The fact that he's made you aware of that this morning tells you he is drawing your heart to salvation. So right now, in the quietness of your heart, you just say, Lord, I need you to save me. I need to be born again. I'm tired of being religious and I need a relationship with you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, because the Lord just revealed that you needed to come to faith in Him for the very first time, I'm going to ask you to be very, very courageous. Very courageous. And with everybody else's head bowed and their eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer and you have given your heart to Jesus this morning, would you just stand up right where you are? I know, it's, I know it takes a moment of courage. Just right where you are. Just stand up and look at me. And again, I, I can only come to the conclusion that every person in this room knows exactly what words they'll hear when they come to the end of their life. That you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So if that's true, if everybody in this room is a believer and you've truly been born again and your life is bearing that out, there's a reality that can be seen that you belong to Jesus. Then I think our response is the same response the disciples had. You know, Jesus didn't undersell what it meant to come and be his disciple. He laid it out. He said, the road's hard. The gate is uh, narrow. There's not a lot of people on this road. It's going to cost you everything, but you're going to find life. He didn't hide it. So this morning, maybe for you, it is, it is about re-embracing that life in Christ. Saying, Lord, whatever it costs me, if I get you, it's worth it. So I'm going to invite you to stand. As you're standing, we're going to pray. And maybe this morning, it's just that next step of obedience for you. I know there are some of you in here this morning, you have been saved, but you know what you haven't done? You haven't taken the first real step of obedience and been baptized. And you need to do that. Again, there's fruit that we produce when we belong to Jesus, and that fruit is obedience. And the first thing we do after salvation is we are baptized. If you haven't been baptized, come and tell me. We can baptize you today. i got everything you need. So whatever you need to do right now, if for some reason you didn't stand a minute ago and you just need to come and say, i got to give my heart to Jesus, then do that. If you need to come and be baptized, come and do that. If you need to come and just kneel at these steps and say, Lord Jesus, I need to re-embrace what it means to walk with you and be obedient to you, you come and do that. We're here to pray with you as we worship, as we respond. Um, let's just be obedient.